Before we begin, this episode has a trigger warning for discussion of both fictional and real-world police violence. The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door Once more, I don't want to get too hung up on this first chapter. Um, it's what we do, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what it is that the first chapter of every discuss of every conversation that we have tends to end up getting front loaded with a whole bunch of different topics that are related specifically to these events. I didn't intend it that way, but mm. it's the way it was when we were introducing Annie and she was setting up the world for us. It's the way that it was during that first conversation between Truth and Conrad and Thomas in Chapter 5, and now we're getting... There's just so much meat here, specifically in Chapter 9 as well. But to, again, bring it back to some earlier topics that I had put on the list, one of the things that we had had revealed to us that doesn't actually get a whole lot of screen time as being significant, is finding out that Truth and Harry aren't just sisters, they're twin sisters. We've only seen the two of them in isolation because Frank met with Harry, and then our first introduction to Truth is alone, well not alone, is the conversation with Thomas. So now that Frank has seen both sisters, he's suddenly aware that they are more or less identical in appearance. And this was something that was passed over so quickly that I'd actually forgotten it until it got revisited, not in Arlington itself, but in one of the later books, where there's mm. that, that comment that, that the two of them are twin sisters. Now here you might ask, you can see Truth and Harry in Antonio's artwork. Didn't you remember then that they were identical? And my answer is that you would have to get a good look at their faces in order to see the similarity. Not to mention that in the Steamheart artwork, they wear their hair differently, and the goggles Harry wears also affects the shape of her face. Alex's writing is chock full of so many details that you'll have to forgive me for forgetting a few along the way. And usually, when the presence of twins is present... It tends to towards specific kinds of stories and tropes and relationships between each other that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Some of them may be actually accurate. I've never known twins in real life, so I don't know if it's true when it's say that they can have their own language when talking to each other or that they will sometimes play up their similarities or switch places with each other that may be purely a narrative thing the when it actually comes up 
I, I can't speak to the reality of any of this. I know that there are a lot of people that have played around with the idea of what does it actually mean when two people are physically identical? Does it mean that they trade off their character traits or anything like that? Do they have some sort of unspoken bond, uh, invisible bond between each other that is almost supernatural in some ways? It's a very singular type of relationship that's difficult to speculate on from the outside looking mm, in because mm. it's just sort of like every single like relationship and dynamic and like the surrounding context is like there's a myriad of things that can influence it. And this is just one more thing that means that you're not really going to be able to make any kind of sweeping declaration of these are unifying characteristics. No. Like some people will lean into it, others will kind of actually make steps to kind of set themselves apart from one another. It's a thing. It's certainly that I would say that in media that mm -hmm. there are certain dominant tropes, to be sure. Yeah. And but in this particular case, one could almost say that the fact that Truth and Harry couldn't be more different from each other is is just mm. another one of those tropes to a certain and that's extent. it yeah. yeah it's it's like it's more like even though they were raised by the same family, you have an experience like with say the parent trap where two identical sisters are raised in two different households and so therefore are different just by dint of their personal experience and everything like that. It could also the be the, the 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 nurture being different, uh, therefore affecting their essential nature. But on top of that, you can imagine that even if two twins were brought up in a stable family, that they might want to be different as a way of distinguishing themselves from each other, that maybe they have a conflict that comes from not wanting to be mistaken for each other and wanting to carve out their own identity. Right. In this particular case, the differences are kind of baked in because Harry is neurodivergent and truth mm -hmm. is... And here I originally said normal, which I realize in hindsight is a form of bias that I need to avoid. So instead, I will say that Truth Arlington is neurotypical basically then takes her own cues on how to develop based around her interactions with her father. Because lest we forget, and this is something that I pondered on a little bit in my own notes, is wondering if Truth specifically ended up taking a job that would bring her into conflict with her father. Because if this is something that had been happening since she was a child, then mm. maybe she was unconsciously continuing that pattern because it's too familiar to how she grew up constantly butting heads with her father mm. that she may have wanted to forge her own identity and build her own life and instead built a life that specifically once more means that she has to fight with thomas mm. and she doesn't like it but that doesn't mean that we don't gravitate towards familiar patterns unconsciously either yeah the i mean the family dynamic is established early on in the chapter like frank frank introduces the chapter in a way that almost sounds like an 
alternative opening line to the book. It's something along the lines of this being the story of the family that pulled at the threads to try and put America back together. Mm. We've seen these characters alone, and now we get time to experience everyone, like, focus on all of them together like this. It strikes a balance of conveying the many years of experience that everyone present has in just being around one another and having a well-worn and informed expectation of each member and how they are likely to react, while also emphasizing that these days this is not a common event. They don't all hang out together like this in present circumstances, and as well-practiced and ingrained as these uh, family roles, positions, and interactions are, there is nevertheless a tentative awkwardness on everyone's behalf that suggests that what they're trying to do here, this peaceful and amicable family gathering, it may not be that those present are fundamentally opposed to it, but whether it's because of current stresses or long-standing grief or recent arguments among one another, there is nevertheless a difficulty to all of this that's hard to move past. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the larger picture as well. Mm. Um, I brought up the twin thing because, again, mm. as far as the family dynamic, it's a component, but we sort of have to interpret what that component means a little bit because mm. the story itself does not focus on it. It focuses on Truth and Harry as well as Sarah and Thomas as individuals yeah. and their, their individual endeavors are their individual emphasized. endeavors and their individual personalities and how those mm. mesh or clash with each other, especially mm. when they're all together like this. But I felt it was important to highlight because this is not the only time in the future we are going to see twins appear in the narrative of New Century. That is true. So there will be further conversations about that later on. Mm. Um, do you did you have anything else that you wanted to say specifically yeah. about Harry and Truth before we move I, on? I will because I think like we talked a lot about like sort of twins represented in media and everything like that. But um, as for like the specifics of the thematic and symbolic links between Truth and Harry and this story and the series. I'd say that they embody two sides of interaction and lack of interaction with the world, or to put it another way, they engage with the world and make sense of it in different ways. This is akin to how Thomas and Sarah represent two opposing ends of the scale and their engagement with the world, but it's not a direct parallel. For Thomas and Sarah, the question is about trust. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, no, I'm fine. No, continue. I'm just I'm loving this to a certain extent, but also I had a thought. Please, please right. go on. I, I love it. I didn't want to hear that thought. For Thomas and Sarah, the question is about trust. Thomas finds it difficult to trust the world and people, and Sarah places a lot of value in the act of trust and its necessity, not necessarily finding it easier to trust people, though this appears to be the case, but more that she places a lot of stock in the importance of wanting to do so. For Harry and Truth, they are both problem solvers who are contributing a lot to the nationwide effort to rebuild, but they're engaging with this wide-scale general problem in two different areas. Truth concerns herself with 
people and spends all her time in communications when she says as a sort of counterpoint to one of Thomas's arguments that I understand people, Dad. It's not just she understands people and how they are. It's in relation to what Thomas was talking about. That is a strength of hers that she is using to try and do some good. Mm. Harry, conversely, finds engaging with people very hard, but she has a masterful understanding of mechanical systems. What we see later of Thomas's like fears of assault that's a very human problem of fear and harry can't necessarily engage with the emotional side of this by sitting down and talking with thomas and discussing what people are like and what they go through but she can solve the problem of thomas just feeling vulnerable by finding a way to armor him while he can still go about his job Truth and Harry have very different strengths and they like a lot of new century cast members want to be of the most use they can be where they can. So they apply themselves to different areas, but when together, you get a feeling that Truth can look out for Harry and that they are a wonderful unit in that way. I think that the point that you came up with here in terms of Sarah and Thomas being at two ends of the spectrum, which is the obvious one, but the thing that I hadn't thought of is Truth and Harry also being opposite ends of a different spectrum to mm. two opposing poles, one might say. Although, when you're talking about this, there doesn't need to be only an x-axis and a y-axis and everything no. like that. Yeah. There could be many different poles of interaction, as you, as, as you suggest. But the fact that they're perfectly balanced in this way, kind of, it, there, there's a synchronicity to all of that mm. in terms of the mm. metaphorical representation and how that all actually plays out. Mm. And this actually dovetails a little bit into when we finally see the end result of Harry's internal musings and she presents the body armor to her father and, you know, just showing it mm. off to everybody, just thinking about the fact that there are people in the family that would specifically try and deal with the emotional side of things th that Harry cannot engage with, but she does see a problem to be solved and mm. therefore goes about solving it, meaning just as in truth has inherited some of Thomas's combativeness and willingness to engage in a debate and to push for an agenda... Harry could be considered a separate part of Thomas as well, or honestly, Thomas and Sarah, in terms mm. of solving a problem. It's just that she has a very deliberate way of going about solving that problem. It's a exactly. practical way of solving it. It's a mechanical exactly. way of solving it. Mm. So things are st starting to now flow into each other. Let's try and move into some of the aspects of the other chapters here, because at this point mm. we really have um, <laughs> a little bit, really are a little bit top heavy here in terms of what we're trying to cover. The next chapter, chapter 10 specifically, is kind of fascinatingly titled. Like most of the chapters before, it names the one character that is introduced and reflected on in the chapter, but Agent Lee, the spy, as the chapter suggests, 
she actually reveals very little of herself, and that is almost appropriate. Mm. We learn things about her by what she says or does not say, by how she carries herself and how Frank responds to her. But in terms of what is actually revealed, she is very tightly controlled. Yes. As, as a nature of who she is, one of the early conclusions that Frank comes to, since we are seeing this through his eyes, through his journal entry, rather than Thomas's, is that he comments that he doesn't think the two of them will be friends. And at first I thought of it more as an assertion of the idea that maybe she doesn't really make friends, that she carries mm. herself too apart from others and focuses only on her duty, making her mm. an understandable reflection of Thomas himself. Yes. But after some of the additional content in Chapter 12, where Agent Lee comes in during the discussion of the uh, map of cults and everything like that, and... It seems clear that the man that loves talking to everyone does not relish talking with Agent Lee, Frank, mm. in this case. You know, it, it's there, there's a significance behind all of that. And, you know, when we talk about Harry, who we've talked about in terms of not being good at communication necessarily with other people... She isn't necessarily clued into the nuances of social dynamics, but Harry doesn't like mm. Agent Lee. And yeah. that, again, says something substantial about her. Yes, that's, I think, it is a universal impression of Lee. Lee is a curious case. The energy of what she presents to the world comes across immediately even if we don't get to hear much about what her deal is and it is deliberately set up that way she takes the scene that should be an introduction to her and places the emphasis instead on frank and his past as a way of redirecting focus like she's channeling the element of water <laughs> and it comes across as needlessly hostile like since frank didn't appear to give any reason for her to take on an approach that reads as kind of like insensitive and mm -hmm. a bit like sort of assessing to the point of like cynical like uncertainty like to the point where it's like you know it reads as hostile mm -hmm. That in itself says something about Lee, as you made a point of. She is a spy. She is secretive, so she'll keep her cards close to her chest. And it is her job to not only be well-informed and to relay information to those who need to hear it, but to keep on her toes and not give trust easily. For now, the absence of further characterization into Lee means that her presence reads as a symbolic embodiment of one of the darker aspects of Thomas's character. You brought that up a moment ago, and I was nodding my head feverishly. Mm. Her loyalty to Thomas and his and Thomas's reliance on her represents that part of him that fundamentally cannot trust people and needs to gather some kind of insurance, whether through security, information, or secretly laid plans. And while that could be described as being well-prepared, it can also come across as having a detrimental tendency to keep people at arm's length and then some. Lee being someone that is disliked by Frank and Harry, who we both like, 
adds to the impression that the things she that Lee represents as Thomas's spy are also troubling. Mm. I'm not sure that there is a lot more that we can say about Lee at this point because, as we've already said, what we are able to learn about her is so very limited, and we will learn more about her later on. But it's practically a function of the chapter to introduce her and to do so in a way that is specifically indicative of all of these aspects that we've already discussed here. Lee knows plenty about Frank and reveals some things that we did not know as a result, but she will not expose her vulnerable underbelly under these circumstances. She does, regardless of Thomas's trust, she is not going to expose herself to someone that she does not know in any capacity and therefore will not expose herself to the audience as well. Mm. So in a very real way, this chapter that is the spy is very functional in terms of this is what she does. This is not who she is. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's sort of shows an attitude that kind of, doesn't necessarily acknowledge a care that she has balanced things in her favor and over like it's out of balance because she has given nothing of herself but she has taken without permission like more than her fair share of personal knowledge of Frank and considering how personable that a lot of Arlington has been with a lot of our main characters of just slowly getting to know each other like frank is considerate with the way we have seen him be considerate with the way that he asks personal questions to thomas and the arlington family whether it was like how thomas developed his name arlington where he Mm -hmm. derived it from or what the naming conventions was it's a thing that doesn't go beyond surface level like just Mm -hmm. your name like and I think there's something respectful to that where he even says that if you don't want to like say more, that's fine. Lee does more than that and then some without mm-hmm. permission. And that's a, I think, considering how the book has been so far, it just accentuates that she is someone who will not really pay time to niceties. She will just like do her job. Mm-hmm. And it's reads as quite sort of disarming and mean basically it's just like what harry's impulse is is kind of like our impulse is that it's like this person seems like we don't like her Mm. but here's the additional information that we had gotten as a result of lee that we did not previously know which is exposition through a gross invasion of privacy (laughs) yeah I do realize characterizing Lee this way may seem a little unfair. Maybe Thomas counts on Agent Lee to trust no one, so he can trust a few. He certainly likely relies on her to find information out. And it's hard to say exactly how secret some of this information might be, since he is a part of the army and would need to be vetted. It's just that Agent Lee chose to introduce herself in such a way to make Frank, and therefore us, aware of the fact that she looked into him. It doesn't feel friendly, and her choice to introduce herself this way either shows a lack of tact or is a deliberate means of informing Butler where he stands with her. 
we finally understand more of why Thomas might have chosen to trust Frank, because we now understand that they have a mutual loss between mm-hmm. the two of them. Thomas mm-hmm. understands that Frank lost his wife and children as a result of the Wendigo outbreak. So that's a point of commonality now between the two of them. And even though they don't actually discuss it, not in the chapters that uh, we're covering today, there is nevertheless a clear unspoken moment of sympathy that passes between the men now that Mm. they know that they share a common wound. Mm. It lays it all bare. And... I think Thomas's sympathy for Frank is also mixed with an apologetic regret because you know that Lee likely looked into all of this at Thomas's request before the events of this book. Mm. He wanted to know the man whose hands he was considering placing his and Sarah's lives in, but exposing that traumatic loss from Frank's past without his permission as opposed to Thomas's comparable wound being something he consented to sharing in the handbook and by extension with Frank as well. It feels like a step too far. And I think Thomas knows this and feels some shame because of it. Like I think Frank acknowledges that Thomas shared a, an apologetic look. And I think that's something you don't see Thomas do a lot. But even he, despite Lee being kind of an extension of some of his need for control and just getting all knowledge there because of that like intimate knowledge of grief it just feels like he understands that this was not cool the other thing that i ended up learning as a result of this and it's true to the historical stuff as well is that Annie Oakley, that was not her birth name. She was apparently born Phoebe Ann Mosey, which Mm. is intriguing. Like, the as near as I could tell, I didn't do an exhaustive search of any of this, but there's never an indication of why she changed her name specifically. Given Annie Oakley's actual historical stuff, it may well be that she took on this different name as being a part of her stage performance, that she wanted something differently, a a different moniker to go by or something like that. As is obvious, this stage performance never actually occurred. Frank and Annie met under completely different circumstances than Mm. the one in which Annie became a part of Butler's shooting act and everything Mm. like that. So she would have had that name joining the RSA, and that would be the name that that Frank ends up knowing her by. And she doesn't even change her name to Annie Butler upon the two of them getting married, which we know that that they have done at this point. And maybe it's just because the name Annie Oakley, in this particular case even though not being a stage name was like the name that she was well known by in the RSA or something like that. Or maybe Mm. Frank just isn't that traditional in terms of being one of those people that expects his wife to take on his family name or anything like that. 
I, I also mm. suspect there might be a, a, a storytelling aspect of it as well in terms of Alex identifies her as Annie Oakley in the text because that's the name that we would know her by historically as well. And yeah. changing it would be unnecessarily confusing and would defeat some of the purpose of having a known historical figure as being part of his story and everything like that. But it's an interesting combination between the fiction of New Century and the reality of the world, and therefore mm. thinking about the reasons why these things might remain true even in alternate history, as mm. well as why it is that Annie might have taken on a different moniker in the face of the Wendigo outbreak and everything like that. Yeah, and from a quick Google, it would appear that uh, you know her first name Annie is because of her middle name mm -hmm. Anne, and that her sisters would call her Annie, and mm -hmm. she reportedly chose Oakley as her professional surname after the name of an Ohio town near her home. Ah, uh, uh, okay. So, but again, this like doesn't necessarily answer the question of like. Why did she feel a need to in the context of New Century? But I imagine we'll get there. I suppose one reason you like the only reason you might go with the person's original name and not necessarily reveal that they are this particular well-known historical figure is mm. if you were going to reveal it as some sort of twist or like a revelation that you go, oh well, like you know. Um, there's this character called Phoebe Moses, and then there's a moment where she has to like do a shooting challenge, and she just like clears it completely easily. And they go like, "What did you say your name was?" Like Phoebe Moses, but my friends call me Annie, uh, uh -huh. and like uh, or something like that. But um, no, I, I don't think they play coy with that, and it's because you sort of want to kind of be raising the the exact questions we're asking here, mm -hmm. like hey, like, that's cool that we have these figures. What happened in order to make some parts of history consistent and while other things were wildly divergent? I know that when we get to Steamheart, yeah. we're going to learn more about Annie's youth and the experiences that, that she had, much as we're going to get to learn more about mm. Frank as well. Mm. I just don't remember all of the details of whether or not the novel specifically might reveal some of the answers that to the questions yeah, we're asking right that, now. There is a chapter in Steamheart that is more or less a recitation of like mostly like historical biography of like mm -hmm. parts of the real Annie Oakley's life that happened. So I think there may be one or two additions that may be answer some of the questions that we have here in a sort of way that just slides in amidst uh, the historical documented facts rather elegantly, but we shall see when we get there. Mm. As it turns out, I recently re-listened to those very chapters Toby references, and can confirm that things will be revealed. I still don't know how much is New Century and how much is the history, but for the purposes of Through the Window, these are topics that we will come back to. So, 
here's one of the topics that we've been sort of dreading coming to. Um, and the chapters that we're take addressing... A, take a long draft of that cigarette or a sip of that coffee, whatever you've got to hand, because you're going to need it. Yeah. I mean, we're only beginning to get into this particular topic because the chapters of 11 and 12 don't go into the implications of it too deeply. Uh, chapter 11 mostly focuses on Thomas himself, thanks to the article that Raven writes. And 12... Some of the elements come up, but it's really more about the work that Frank and Thomas are doing together, and then the work that Harry is doing with Master Yagyu. Mm. Um, but the way that Chapter 10 ends is kind of with a bang. Definitely no pun intended there, because there's no necessarily nothing implication. Funny that, here. No, yeah. no, no, nothing funny, but it also sounds like the altercation that happened between the off-duty officers or potentially even the on-duty officers, mm. I don't think the text makes it clear, and the fact that they murdered a bunch of black men in a fight, basically. Mm. Seven men. Seven men, yeah, exactly. It doesn't go into whether firearms were actually used. I got the impression that it might have just been a... They were beaten. They were beaten to death, yeah, exactly. Mm. One has to recall that Arlington was written over the course of very late 2015 through mid-2016, over a year after the deaths of Eric Garner and Michael Brown, the latter of which set off the protests and further violence in Ferguson, Missouri. And while the deaths of the men in the novel at the hands of police don't appear to relate directly to a real world event. Alex has confided that if it did, he is forgotten thanks to the plethora of other names that have come up in regards to police violence. But it's with this detail that we lead into chapter 11 and it just it leaves an even more sour taste in the mouth now than it did back when this book was originally published. Yeah. Uh, the revelation of the cop's involvement is one of those elements that we, Alex, and really everyone involved would really, really have loved if it didn't feel as relevant, like more relevant than ever as the years advanced. When we talk about Arlington being hard to go back to, this is what we're talking about. The parts of it that talk about and confront a hateful, corrupt tar at the heart of America and the institutions that envelop us and are supposedly there for our protection. It's a necessary part of our lives to process and talk about, but it is absolutely bitter medicine with some rough side effects. The conversation, perhaps, is the medicine, although it doesn't even necessarily work as medicine if the mm. conversations don't actually lead to change. Mm. And that's unfortunately one of the ongoing problems with discussing police violence is that the conversation has been going on and on since 2014 
and not enough has been done to actually advance that mm. conversation. As of 2021, I don't remember at this point how many policemen were actually found guilty of the very real crimes that they committed. It feels like with all of those past trials and investigations that there were too many cops that were not that were found not guilty of committing the murders that they did only a few months ago Derek Chauvin was one of the few officers actually found guilty in a court of law and given punishment for his crime even that doesn't feel much like progress when it's seemingly the exception to the rule and when it doesn't actually feel like this one verdict will change things that much. It's closing the doors after the horses have gone, and the conversation about how do we prevent this from happening in the future has not been properly answered yet, and that's part of the reason why it sticks in our craw the way it does. Mm. And for now, I'm just going to have to leave that there because that's too heavy for right now. And we've got more stuff on the table to actually discuss. That is heavy enough in its own right. But since the culmination of that conversation of the trial of the policeman is going to be covered in greater depth in later chapters, let's move on to the stuff that this chapter actually does. Mm, yes. In the first part of chapter 11, where we meet Raven, and the two of them have a conversation that's divided into two parts. Well, I mean, not so much a conversation, but directly as a result of Raven reading his own article on the subject, we get to see his direct confrontation of Thomas, mm. his handbook and his goals, in a way that nobody else has been to date. Basically bringing everything into question as it perhaps rightly should be. He does not do so directly, maybe a little bit after he's done reading his article. But the point is, is that this isn't so much a news article that is being read here as in one that's more along the lines of an op-ed or even a speech that Raven might be giving to say a correspondence dinner or, or a political dinner or something like that. Mm. Thus far in New Century, the audience, us and everybody else, might be more likely to be on Thomas's side because we want him to successfully root out racism and corruption and help bring us to a better world where these questions that we don't have good answers for in the real world can actually be brought to some sort of better conclusion. But at the same time, everything that Raven says here does hit home and reminds mm -hmm. us the difference between the will of one man and what it means to try and impose that will on an entire nation. The simple truth is that removing choice for the good of humanity, even for altruistic reasons, could still be as dangerous as any authoritarian regime. Mm. Raven is here to take some of the subtext of Cartographer's handbook and make it text. There are 
some things about Thomas's express goals and outlook that should concern us. What he proposes has dangerous implications, as necessary as they seem in this particular context. Raven's contribution and these ideas are not a case of trying to convey a message of, oh, well, there are flaws with both sides of the broader political debate going on here. You know, that tiring and mm. frankly dangerous attitude that is associated with South Park that has the effect of leading folks to the conclusion that eh, it's all bullshit, why engage with any of it at all? No, 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 that's not what this is. It's about the necessity of challenging those with power and authority by engaging with the specifics of their policies and interrogating them. Raven's introduction to us through this article shows us that he's not dismissing everything about Arlington in one broad stroke. He's talking about each and every element of what Thomas has shared through the handbook and even analyzes how they feed into one another and inform each other as a system of proposals and agendas. Raven somehow manages to be considerate in his appraisal of Thomas while simultaneously holding nothing back on the parts that terrify the shit out of him. We know that Raven has a Hunter S. Thompson quality to him that from this scene alone, and that cutting through the bullshit is part of his character. But I'm impressed by how much of his compassion and humanity comes through at the same time. This is very much uh, a, a very thorough introduction to Raven as a character, not entirely, but mostly by dint of what he is like behind his typewriter, mm. so to speak, about th this. Th these are his thoughts composed into a cogent and compelling narrative in and of mm. themselves that is a little bit separate from the kind of person that we know he is while having a frank discussion with Thomas. Mm. We're going to get to see more of Raven under different circumstances where some mm. of his other personality traits come out. Mm. But yeah, there there is a polished side to Raven and there is an unpolished side to Raven. Yeah, that unpolished side definitely has some blemishes. Uh... And we get to see a lot of one and only a little bit of the other in terms of this first conversation between the two. Raven can be very blue in terms of what words he chooses to use in later conversation that is far more in line with not Hunter S. Thompson per se, but another fictional character that is based off of Hunter mm. S. Thompson that mm -hmm. we both know that... Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> that Alex is fairly familiar with. But it's also a little bit because as much as Raven has no problem with standing up to authority, he also kind of assumes that he is not going to live through this conversation. And mm. he's made his peace with it, but he doesn't really feel the need to be as angry and as curse-worthy, as we know he ends up being at certain points later on. He mm. is presenting an altogether uh, a, a face to Thomas that suggests, look, I've said my piece, I'm happy with what I've written, now do your worst. 
Mm. Uh, and and I think there's a character, like a strength of character that's there that like he is not making any attempts to sort of back down on what he said. He stands by it with like mm-hmm. without blinking or flinching. He just like there is nothing about Raven about his words that ring as insincere. They're polished and they're kind of like the best version of himself that's put through a focus of this is everything that I feel and think towards this particular like important matter but he doesn't try to say that this isn't him he just goes like yeah this is me mm-hmm. yeah reflecting on the article part of this chapter mm-hmm. we already know that Alex likes to 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 pay homage to mm. significant lines or moments from the movies that he loves the most in his writing. And I'd actually forgotten that this was a part of the speech until preparing for this moment and rereading and re-listening to it, that he pulls out a line from The Mummy and uses it in very different context. Because there is a character in The Mummy called Benny, who (laughs) basically is a coward and a a lackey for whoever has the power around him, but doesn't really have much of the strength of his convictions and will always run and think of himself more than anything else. And when he is confronted by his old friend, and companion, someone who knows what he is, that he is a coward, and asks him to account for himself why it is that he's allied with uh, Imhotep, the priest that has now become a, a bringer of plagues and a monster. Benny says, it's better to be by the devil's side than in his path. <laughs> but in this case, the line is used specifically as an assertion of what Thomas might be like, that these goals that Thomas wants to achieve might require some level of potentially necessary evil, Mm. so to speak. Like, it's hard for me to parse out exactly what Raven means by this, but it still feels like... It still feels like what he's saying, that Raven is basically getting into the fact that his rhetoric is very potentially dangerous, and Mm. that that danger is indicative of a deal with the devil, metaphorically, Mm. so to speak. I think the invocation of the phrase is used to summarize the decision, the dilemma that Thomas is basically thrusting upon the people of America. You are either working with me on this or you are working against me. And so, like, if you're unsure of Thomas's goals and think that there may be some questionable aspects of it, the position that Thomas is putting you in is whether to be by the devil's side or in its path. And I, I think there is like uh, something. Wait, so you, you think that maybe he's characterizing himself 
as a devil because he knows that that's how some people would think of him being a black man in power. I I don't know if I would like to like I would say it or believe that Thomas is framing it as that. I think that Raven is invoking it as a sort of this impulse to basically put your the nation in a state of total war is an unnatural state of being ah, and that okay, to, yes. and that to pursue that has some questionable implications and in that context it's not necessarily like that you know it's calling thomas the devil in sort mm-hmm. of capital t capital d it's more a case of like if this is a necessary questionable action and necessary like sin as to like as it were then the question now is that that like thomas would be putting on people is to be by the devil's side which isn't necessary to say that he is the devil but that like what they have to do is like mm-hmm. this devilish act or in its path so that's a clunky thing it's a sort of off the cuff like interpretation so it may be subject to some structural weakness in its integrity but it's one possibility of its invocation no and... but you're perfectly honest the way you just put it because I was struggling with that line myself, and that's part of the reason mm. why I gave it its own well, section sort of conversation. in our outline. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because I needed your help to sort of parse this out a little bit. Better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think that you know we stumbled a little bit as we were trying to figure it out. But honestly, the way you just put it now, where it's not any individual person mm. that is quote unquote the devil, it's the it's the means. Like, it's it's yeah the, it's, the it's like if this is a devilish endeavor it's like do you want to be with the endeavor or like in the path of it that's mm-hmm. kind of like how i take it if i was to clean that up a bit one last thing i'll say about like the specific like reference to benny and the mummy is that what i thought when you pointed it out because I love that film, but it's not something i revisit so i didn't mm-hmm. necessarily catch the reference as it were yeah. Uh, if if Raven had said it in Benny's voice, I think I probably would have recognized it because he has <laughs> Benny has a distinct voice that is just really like enjoyable to listen mm-hmm. to in terms of just enjoying him as a sort of Starscream esque like mm-hmm. like could you imagine Starscream saying like it is better to be at the devil's side than it is path? I I can't do a Starscream. Um, yeah. anyway. Benny in the Mummy is characterized by his invoking of words of faith and wisdom from a variety of cultures and sources without really buying into any of them or having conviction underneath the surface to those words. And by that, I'm kind of referring to the moment that when he's confronted with the mummy, he just mm-hmm. has this like loot bag of various like religious. Mm-hmm. artifacts is like does this work it doesn't does this work it doesn't does this work and then he eventually finds one that works so he well he like, finds one that gets like, him a response from the mummy that is not i am now going to eat you yeah um, it's specifically invoking of the of the star of david the jewish faith it it doesn't act like a cross to be like thing of evil like like with a vampire or something like that thing of evil Just, be gone or whatever it's something it, that the mummy recognizes and so like it generates a new action that delays his uh, benny's death but mm-hmm. 
it it feels fitting that the this particular phrase has you know it has a humorous edge to how Benny relays it as a justification for his reprehensible self-serving interests. Having said that, what is interesting is that you could argue that like this one tenet is one that like Benny actually does believe and holds to. Like he will rattle off a bunch of like scripture from a variety of sources, but it's basically like he does like he doesn't buy into any of it. This is the one that like he is actually his faith. Uh-huh. But with Raven who says what he means and means what he says, when he invokes it, it's with a more introspective understanding of the implications of this philosophy and what it will do for America's collective soul should they follow it. Hmm. Hmm. That's like specifically talking about souls and the metaphor of America's soul, so to speak. That mm. does sort of put the use of the phrase in context, since we're already invoking the devil and everything like that. That does tie together kind of neatly. Neat. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, it's it's sometimes sometimes we hit on the right notes or anything like that, and it's not like anything that we do here is going to be an exhaustive conversation, particularly since you know we're covering multiple chapters and multiple things and not ever necessarily able to give each individual point a thorough mining out, given that we have time limits and everything like that. But it's definitely a significant part of the conversation. And, you know, now that we have a separate part of Through the Window where we talk in more depth about individual moments of Mm -hmm. New Century, maybe this will get revisited later on. But Greg, uh, like we have to cover everything with our shows. We need to be the definitive discussion of these books and every single element of their conversation, thereby negating the need for any further conversation or reflection on these books, because we will have covered everything. Wait a minute, I just hit on why it's impossible to follow everything and why we should not follow that, because... There will always be more to talk about. So even as comprehensive as we are, we want there to be more to be said and for other people to pick up that conversation and for us to potentially revisit it or consider it from a different angle. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was the entire point of why, part of the reason why I wanted a new dialogue with Maureen to begin with, because she was going to have new ideas and bring fresh discussion into certain kinds of topics unlike my stale year and a half perspective no no you (laughs) toby you you know know what i I mean yeah exactly i I mean it's just it's all right your your insight is always valued and you help me to see things that i had not considered and i helped you to see things that you had not considered but the whole point of getting other voices into this whether it's having discussions with the other voice actors or potentially at some point um, having conversations with other fans as well. I mean, that's one of the things that I had hoped for, but it hasn't happened yet. I still feel like, you know, maybe if Dan Mayer or Valencia Burns or someone else would like to come on specifically Mm -hmm. to have a discussion about a book or a topic Mm. that they feel passionately about, then that can be a place for new 
voices to come in and new conversations to be had besides mm -hmm. you and me. And, is... you know, who knows? There could eventually be a competing fan podcast. We're not, you know, tr we're not trying mm. to, uh, what's the word, to uh, deny competition or anything mm. like that. And, uh, like, it's an open invitation. Like, we, it's never, like, there's never an expiry date on, like, us wanting to talk with someone who wants to talk about it, has something that they really want to share and, like, sort of run it, like, just have a space to talk about what they're interested in with this series. And Greg and I are getting better all the time with, like, doing what we do. And that's not to say that we are, like, the best authority on this that is just meaning that we are getting better at communicating and conveying our emotive responses like to all of this mm. and that means that you know we're quite content and happy with like continuing to do that to get better but the desire to hear from other people that never goes away it's not like a call to order so if you're hearing this don't feel like you must voice up or anything like that but it's just one of those things that is an open invitation that can be picked up at any time someone feels uh, inclined to do so yeah we are just reminding people like we comment and subscribe yeah exactly this is the call to action here <laughs> this is you know if you feel like you want to contribute to through the window in any way then please do so because the whole point of this being a fan podcast is not simply that we are two fans and we are the best fans or anything like that I mean because for goodness sake there, there have been people there have been people that have been following along with this for as long as or longer than Toby and I have we're just the ones that can't shut up about yeah. it, and that's why we have a podcast. I, so. I came on board with like uh, Princess Thieves. I, man, I was like long in the series was like multiple installments in. There's others who uh, have been here longer. We are not the super fans. We like we're just we're just vocal ones. <laughs> Yeah, oh no, exactly. uh, vocal fans is the worst thing to be. Uh, oh God, we you're are, right. no. <laughs> we are, we are, passion no, every single thing that is like, I am a fan with opinions. Like, we are expressive lovers of New Century. Yes, and the, no, here's the thing, is that we are fans, but we are not, we are fans that are not coming on to gatekeep. We are not making YouTube videos with angry-looking faces on them, with big fonts on it, with, with exclamation points saying, this is everything that's wrong about the thing that I love. From our title, you should know that they're not here to gatekeep. We want you to come through the window. <laughs> oh, but yes. There is, well there played, is nothing gatekeeping about that. Yeah. Like, no gates are kept here. Through the window is not just a description of what we do. It's a call to action. Come through the window with us. It's it's warm and cozy. <laughs> Especially warm and cozy here right now. It's uh, it's a little bit of a warm Sunday here. It is a rainy British Sunday. On your side, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I, part of me wishes that I had some of that rain here because then my room would be a little bit more comfortable, but. 
moving on to the rest of chapter 11, we finally see that after all the confrontation, Thomas is actually more than happy to endorse and even make use of Raven. The reporter, after all, clearly brought his A-game to the conversation. Mm -hmm. He got Thomas's attention, and even though Thomas was very stern and confrontational towards the beginning of all of this and asking, you know, the pointed question of what do you think was going to happen when you actually publish this? Mm. It was more to see that it was more for Thomas to get a sense, a personal sense out of the man that wrote this article. He wanted to know more about whether Raven had the strength of his own convictions. Mm. And I don't necessarily think that the audience, and by that I mean not only you and I, but anybody else reading, would necessarily believe that Thomas would ever do something as radical as disappear the reporter like Raven himself thought. We can see, given the picture that the article paints, that Raven might think that Thomas is a far more reactionary and authoritarian figure, and Thomas essentially proves him wrong. I mean, Thomas is not a villain in this story. Thomas is an authority figure, but he isn't somebody that would kill a man just for expressing a different opinion of anything like that. We mm. are still happy to see that given these earlier words that this entire conversation was a test, yet another test given by Thomas before he made a decision on whether or not to give Raven more access. Mm. Uh, and recent events are basically contributing to that discussion because Thomas clearly sees that Raven might be able to learn things that he could not learn through implementing his own power and resources. Mm. It's a moment where we see Thomas laying confidential plans as a result of his distrust of the institutions around him, as we touched on earlier with Agent Lee and the part of Thomas that we associate with her, mixed in with that kind of early sprouting of trust between two people meeting for the first time that we saw in secret rooms when Annie met with Catherine and recorded her addition to the handbook. As such, it accentuates the fact that Thomas is leaning more and more towards setting things up off the record in a way that can be read as either cannily forward planning or concerningly sketchy, but reassures us that he is still human underneath and motivated by a desire to help people and responds well to others who share that impulse. Instead of like that sort of exchange of names that defines Annie and Catherine's trust being sealed in their scene, in this one, I think that the sort of shaking of the hands moment occurs when at the end of the chapter, Raven returns Thomas's question and asks him, What was the best you thought was going to happen? after you publish the second edition of the cartographer's handbook. And it's a case of like kind of acknowledging that they've both put out something, like a piece of writing, and it's something that they have an interest in. I think that Thomas's answer 
like we don't hear the rest of it but mm-hmm. he the part we do hear is like uh to start off with empathy and we know the rest of that answer because we've heard conversations in previous chapters where he says that like the handbook is a test of empathy that word coming up here is kind of like a way of like that maybe even this conversation has allowed for some sort of empathy to kind of get to know one another better i i really like it as because it is all within that like room and it is mainly raven's article but i think that it slides in well in amidst everything else that's going on like i've said it before that the structure of arlington allows for these very episodic micro narratives or scenes that Mm. don't necessarily have to be a chain of this leading to this leading to this it can have some like unique chapters that are different to what we've seen before and after which i appreciate i mean when we're talking about the structure this is one more once more feeling a little bit emblematic of the west wing which can mm-hmm. have episodes that lead into each other as in the specific events of the previous episode is something that they're still dealing with in the episode following even as individual chapters might have their own internal B plots or C plots or anything like that. There can be an A plot, particularly as the show discusses things like a re-election campaign or something like that, where that's the A plot and that this is the latest event in following that A plot or smaller A plots that being like, okay, this is the problem we're dealing with now. We've resolved certain parts of it in this chapter, but now we're facing a separate part of it in the following chapter or following chapters, so to speak. Episodes, rather, because, again, I'm comparing this as the West Wing versus Arlington, and one is a show and the other is a book or audio drama. We can definitely see chapters that lead from one to the other, the much the way chapter 9 leads into chapter 10, the immediate events and then the events directly after the family meal and everything like that, or events where, like, say, we learn about the violence of the uh, of the policeman against the seven black men and the way that that story comes up later on in the book because it's a major flashpoint. Again, mm. I don't think that that's spoiling anything because how can it not be a flashpoint given yeah. what it is? Uh, given its symbolic resonance to real-world events. But Mm -hmm. in this particular case, this one chapter with Raven could be considered as being like emblematic of a single episode of The West Wing that stands out by itself and resolves more or less one particular subplot within the walls of its own confines. It's like a bottle episode within the larger season of Arlington that we were comparing it as being episodes of a show rather than chapters of a book, so to speak. Mm. In that particular case, instead of being a plot that is resolved through multiple conversations in multiple areas, this is simply one ongoing conversation that happens between Thomas and Raven with obviously Frank present because Raven makes 
reference to his uh, Thomas's mustachioed thug. And we do know that uh, Frank does have a very nice mustache indeed. But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very contained sub-narrative, and Raven will reappear as being a commentator on events as they proceed forward, because he's the reporter in this, and reporters are to political thrillers what... I don't have a good comparison, but my point is is that uh, there's an ongoing reporter character in the West Wing, so it makes absolute sense that we have one of those in Arlington as well as being a follow-through of that particular kind of storytelling. So the fact that the two of them come to some accord and that the chapter ends with not Raven talking about his opinion and then relaying it to his readership, but in actually engaging in a dialogue between himself and Thomas that is going to be put out the same way that his op-ed was, sort of highlights a little bit the difference in relaying an opinion to your audience in much the way that the cartographer's handbook is relaying an opinion that must be acted upon because this is a manifesto, a piece of propaganda, all the words that we've used previously. Mm -hmm. And the difference between that and Raven asking questions of Thomas and therefore able to get a response. Mm -hmm. It's not one-sided the way the handbook mm. or the op-ed is. Yeah. It, it's hopeful because there is a conversation happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was the end of our initial Skype session as we ran out of time. But that also just happens to give us an episode of decent length. So tune in next time to hear us discuss the final chapter that was on our slate at the time, as well as what happens to be the final chapter of Part 1 of Arlington. As anyone that has made it that far knows, that's where the game changes, and we finally catch up with the events of the first chapter. To close us out, Everyone has heard of this particular artist thanks to a certain Batman movie. Maybe you even heard some of the other singles off the album where this British performer sang about comparing you to a kiss from a rose on the grave. Some of you have might have even heard that single off his first album where he noted that in a sky full of people, only some want to fly. And isn't that crazy? But I suspect most people have never listened to his third album released in 1998 where this title track was about the deaths of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.J. Henry Olisigun Ediola Samuel has always tended towards very poetic lyrics, so it can sometimes be hard to follow what he is saying with his various songs. But I was enraptured by his hit 1994 album, and so picked up this following album eagerly. The lyrics here make me think of Arlington's appeal to empathy, to Sarah's belief in people, but also the dark truth of the white establishment's treatment of black people, how it uses black art and labor and pain as long as it is useful and profitable, but will happily throw its celebrities under the bus the second they're more troubled than they're worth. Just ask Colin Kaepernick. But I, too, believe it is love that we need that will bring us to a better future. So until next time, this is Seal with Human Beings. Mm -hmm.